Hello. It's nice to see you all again. Uh, so we're back in John. That's exciting news. So we're going to make progress. Maybe we'll finish this year. No, we're not going to finish this year, but we'll finish the school year maybe. Maybe. Um, and we've made it to the halfway mark. So tonight marks, I've never counted all of the words, but I mean halfway in sort of the development of the story really. Um, so we're going to be in John 12. We're going to be in verse 36. Um, for some reason, they split the section. So when you actually get there in your Bibles, you're going to see that verse 36 is the end of the last section. And then halfway through, they start this new section. It's still 36. I don't know why they did that. I wasn't there. I would have changed that. Um, so it's like 36B. I don't know. I'm not sure what that means. Um, so John 12. Uh, so like I said, this is the halfway point. Uh, and when I say the halfway point, what I'm, what I'm meaning is, uh, I've said this a couple times, the book is broken down into two, into two halves. In the first half, Jesus is coming and making claims about himself and about his relationship to God. He's making claims and then he's doing signs, miracles, but John never uses the word miracles. He always uses the word signs because they're like proofs. He will say something about himself, and then he'll do a sign that proves that what he said was true, or the other way around. He'll do a sign, and then he'll teach, like, I healed this crippled guy because I need to show you that I am the God who heals, which is the God of the Old Testament. Um, I forget the, the, the Hebrew name. You know it, don't you, Garth? He's Jehovah Rapha. There you go. So he's making this connection. He's making this connection. He's, he's doing these signs, and then he's saying, uh, these signs prove something. I'm not just doing them. Um, so what's happened thus far, and what makes this the end of the section, uh, is that he's done these six signs, and they've grown in increasing power. So the signs started with him turning water into wine, and then uh, he heals a blind man, and then he heals a crippled guy, uh, and then it culminates in him Raising somebody from the dead, Lazarus. He raises Lazarus from the dead. That is the sixth sign that he will do uh, in this half of the book. So he is, it, it culminates in him showing that, yeah, I'm the God who heals. I'm the God who's going to bring the new creation. Uh, I'm the God who is God over the dead. And there's this crazy idea with Lazarus there. And so that marks the end of it. And then there's this last bit of teaching uh, that we've gone over over the last three weeks. So he's clearly explained his purpose in light of his proofs. He's clearly explained everything that was opened up in John 1. So if you were here when we did that, there, in John 1 is this introductory paragraph like talking about uh, I'm, uh, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and everything was made through this being, and nothing was made that wasn't made by him, and then he was the light, and he was going to the darkness, but the darkness rejects him. Uh, he went to his own, but his own didn't receive them. All of that that he says there in the beginning of John has been played out for the last 11 chapters. He has shown that he is the light. And so we looked at two weeks ago, before we took that little Ephesians break, we looked at two weeks ago, those statements. Those very beautiful statements that we talked about that are also very confusing. I'm just going to skim through it real quick. You don't have to be there. These, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I'm lifted up from the earth, I'll draw people to myself. And then he says, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. 
while you have the light. Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. He's setting up this, I'm the light. I'm the light. I came to show light. I came to show you. I came to show you what God's like. I came to cast out darkness. I came to do all these things. And I've proved that I, I, I can back up what I've said. Proved it the whole way. I raised a guy from the dead like two weeks ago. You know, not me, but that's what he's saying. It's a couple weeks ago. I raised a guy from the dead. You can believe me. You can trust me. Um, and then you're going to get now the response to all of that. So this text that I'm about to read is the response, not just to what he said just before. It's the response to the last 11 chapters. It's the response for the last two and a half years of him walking around, doing miracles, healing people, teaching things they've never heard before. This is, their, this is the response. So start in 36b. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. This is what Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Keep in mind, Isaiah, uh, 750 years prior, around there. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. It's heavy, right? Um, so, John's using these two Isaiah quotes, and we're going to pull a lot from there, because the way the New Testament authors use quotes, it's different than the way that we use quotes and you guys use quotes when you're writing an English paper. Like, I know how y'all use quotes when you write an English paper. You haven't really done any research. You know, you got to have, like, what? Uh, you got to have, like, four sources. A couple of them got to be peer-reviewed. Two of them don't. Two of them can be off the Internet. So you got these, you got to have these sources in there. So you write your paper, and then you find somebody who said something similar to what you said. So you put their, uh, their name and the page number right after, and you're like, see, this guy said the same thing I said. And there's back for your argument. And then you've got your sources, and then, you know, you got a 92, and everybody's happy, and you go, uh, you know, you, you graduate. Uh, that's not how the New Testament authors use quotes. When, they use, when he uses this quote, he's not just like saying, hey, look what happened. Isaiah said the same thing. You should believe what I'm saying. What, what he's saying is there's an idea that is in that quote. He's, he's jumping back to Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 40, and he's jumping back in there, and, and he's saying to the, to the Jews who are listening, he's saying to the readers of this, you remember what was going on in Isaiah 6? This is the same thing. You remember what was going on in Isaiah 40? It's the same thing. So he's asking you to not just look at what they said. He's asking you to jump back into the Old Testament and, and, and like, you remember that? This is what's going on again. But the problem is that we're not like really versed in Isaiah and all. I mean, I tried to read Isaiah like 50 times. Now, you're like four chapters in. I'm like, I have no idea what he's talking about. 
This is, uh, and then Ezekiel, we're talking about dragons and all this crazy stuff. And I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. So I understand. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase a bit. Um, the reason he's quoting Isaiah and the reason he's looking back to Isaiah is because this huge question is being brought to light. If Jesus is who he said he is, if he really is the God of the Old Testament, if he really is who he says he is, if he's the fulfillment of clear prophecy over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament, if, if this is the guy, like if it's obvious too that this is the guy, then why do all the Jews reject him? I mean, they've been reading the Old Testament since they were kids. Why do they reject him? Like, what's going on there? And so and around the time of John writing this, like in the 90s, 90 AD, uh, that's, that question is circling around. That question, I mean, when, right when Jesus died, that question's circling around. If he is who he says he is, then why did the Jews reject him? He's the Jewish Messiah. You'd think they know. They're probably rejecting him for a good reason. He's a liar or something. And so he's going to use these quotes from Isaiah to make this really pressing point. And that point is the reason that the Jewish people rejected him is because the Jewish people have always, always, every step of the way, rejected what God sent to them. Every step of the way, every prophet was rejected. Every blessing was rejected. Every bit of revelation was rejected. So it just stands to reason that they're going to reject him as well. So if you, if you, I'm going to piece some stories together if you're familiar with the Old Testament. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, that's okay. Like in the wilderness, they, uh, Moses leads, you know, Moses leads the people out of the, uh, out of the, the slavery in Egypt, and they cross the Red Sea, the Red Sea parts. They walk through the Red, the Red Sea parts, like parts. And they walk through, and the, and the Egyptians are coming behind them. And, and, and when the Egyptians come behind them, the sea closes on them. They walk for three days after that, and then tell Moses that he brought them out there to die, and their God does not love them, and we wish we were back in Egypt. They saw the most amazing miracle that probably I can, besides Lazarus coming back from the dead, the most amazing miracle you can conceive of. And then three days later, they're like, Moses, did you bring us out here to kill us? Your God isn't coming through. Three days. And then, there, and then, so brings water. Takes this pool of bitter water, throws a log in it, clear water. A few days later, they're like, we're hungry. We wish we were back in Egypt. At least there was like things to eat there. So then, from then on, God actually rains bread down from heaven at night while they sleep, and they collect it in the morning and eat it. Bread from heaven, and they eat it. Okay, it's bread. It's coming down from heaven, and they wake up. This is not a normal story. This is weird. This is wildly fantastic. They eat it, and then after a while, they get tired of the bread. And they're like, Moses, why'd you bring us out here? To kill us? We used to eat fish in Egypt. We wish we were back in Egypt. So then God rains quail down on them. Quail just come, I can't remember, but it's like, it's like three miles on either side of the camp or something like that. There's quail on the ground. And so they're eating quail. And then if, so they make it to the edge of the promised land. After being fed with bread from heaven and quail from heaven, they make it to the promised land. They send out spies to check it out. So the place they were going, they were going from slavery to this promised land. If, if you saw the Prince of Egypt, not Disney. I've said that before, it's not Disney. Uh, if you saw the Prince of Egypt, it's about that, right? 
Okay, so th- they make it to the promised land, send in the spies. Spies come back. Ten of them are like, Moses, what are you doing? Did you bring us here to kill us? Your God hates us. These people are giants. They're going to kill us. Let's go back to Egypt. And it's like, seriously? Are y'all kidding me right now? So finally God's like, yeah, y'all are killing me. 40 years. Y'all are going to wander in the desert. I'm going to keep you alive for 40 years, but none of you people are getting in. Your kids are going to get in because I'm still going to do what I I told Abraham I'm going to do. I'm still going to fulfill the covenant. I'm still going to come through. I'm not just going to kill everybody. Even though he probably wanted to real bad. There's good textual evidence for that. But still, he's like, I'm going to kill all the parents, but the children, they're going to make it in. 40 years, they wander around. They make it in. They come in, and they, they, they drive out the people that live there. They drive them out without fighting a lot of the battles. And you know some of these stories. The one where they walk around the city with trumpets. <laughs> it's a crazy story. They walk around the city with trumpets. And like, and then the walls fall down, and they go in and just kill everybody. Like, okay, I don't see how that happened. It must have been God, right? And this, keep ha- this keeps happening. They take over the land in similar fashion every step of the way. Um, and then, and then, they set themselves up a king, and then very quickly, they turn from their God. They start going up on the hills and taking trees and carving into the trees statues and then sacrificing their babies at the foot of those statues, saying that this is our God. Then they start going to the temple of Baal, and husbands, they would take lambs, they would take their money, they bring it to the temple of Baal, have sex with the temple prostitute, go back home. Because that's how you worship Baal. You bring them things, and you have sex with the temple prostitutes. Temple makes money. You get to have sex with a temple prostitute. You get to go home to your wife. So God laid down these rules of living for them, religious customs he gave to them before they got to the land. Social customs. Don't plow to the edge of your field so that poor people, when they're out there, they can have something to eat. What do they do? Screw the poor people. We'll actually hire the poor people to farm everything to the edge. Then we won't pay the poor people because they can't do anything to us anyway. So this is what's going on. Every step of the way, every blessing, every revelation is met on their end by rejection. Rejecting their God, rejecting their God. If you read Hosea, you read some of the prophets, it's like God crying out to them and he's like, I brought you out of Egypt like a baby. He's like, what he says, I remember when you used to lift your arms to me like a small child and I would lift you up. And he's using all this like familial language. I remember when you were like a child in the desert and I weaned you and I raised you and I brought you into the land and you rejected me for other lovers. And you're just like, oh my gosh. It's heartbreaking. But this is how God's people treat God. Rejection. Rejection, rejection, rejection. And then, now, Jesus. The last and final revelation. He quits sending prophets, and he sends his son. And how do they treat that revelation? Same exact way. The same exact way. 
And the big thing, there's two things going on there. He uses that Isaiah passage to say, in the same way, in the same way that just because the Jews rejected everything that God did, it does not deter God's sovereign plan for all of history. He's going this specific direction. It's been his plan from the beginning to take the brokenness and make wholeness, to take the broken creation and to recreate it for a new heavens and a new earth, that Jesus would return and would rule and reign in a perfect place after he's done away with all evil. That's been the direction we're going. Just because the Jews reject him, it doesn't forfeit or delay any of God's plans. God's plans are moving And he is sovereign regardless of the sovereign choices of men. I'm sorry, regardless of the free choices of men. Men are making these choices. Women are making these choices. And God's still going. He's going that way. So you can jump on or you can jump off, but this is where it's going. It's going to recreation. It's going to a new heaven and a new earth. This is where we're going. So your rejection doesn't do a thing to the plan of God. It does nothing the direction that he's moving so then uh, if you follow the old testament and you follow that idea then you're really and if you ask a lot of questions which i tend to do and that's not always good but i tend to do that okay so the question then and the question in the text that comes up is why are the jews that way why do they continually reject it seems like if you gave me free things i would like you if you gave me a large piece of property with milk and honey, I, would, I, w- I wouldn't worship you, but I'd like you, at least. If I had enemies and you, and you killed them, I would at least be grateful. Why, why, why is there that sort of rejection on the part of the Israelites? Why do they do that? So that's what that next quote says. So jump in, your, uh, in verse 40 there. It says, therefore, therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. The reason why is because clear revelation will always cost something. It's easier to stay in the dark. Because deep down we know the light is better and more beautiful and more freeing. But we've been in the dark so long that the light hurts our eyes. It's revealing. It makes us insecure. It reveals too much. It shows too much. Revelation will always cost something. Even though there's this giving on the part of God and this leading on the part of God and this planning and this loving on the part of God. He's saying, trust me. Don't go your own way. Go my way. Don't go your own way. Go my way. I didn't make these rules because I like to make rules. I made life to work a certain way and if you follow in that, there will be life. He's not saying, give me your firstborn son. He's saying, follow and trust. That's what it requires. Submission. Submission. So what he's saying with that Isaiah text is he's saying, remember what happened in Isaiah 6. Remember what happened in Isaiah 6. 
That's what that, that closing. Remember what happened there. Because what happened in Isaiah 6 is this really beautiful story, if you've heard it. Isaiah goes into the temple, and it says he sees the Lord high and lifted up. Sees the Lord. And he says these winged beings are circling him. They have six wings, and they cover their face with two wings, and they cover their feet with two wings, and they fly with two wings. And they circle the Lord, and they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah sees it and falls on his face. And he's like, I'm unclean. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And as soon as he says that, one of those little winged creatures flies down and takes a coal and touches his lips. And then the Lord says, your sins atone for. Your sins atone for. And then the Lord says, who will go for us? Whom shall I send? And then Isaiah says, Hey, I'm, here I am. Send me. Send me. And then God says, okay. Isaiah says, what am I going to do? He says, we're well, going to go tell my people that I'm sending an army stronger than them to destroy them because they've rejected my law, because they've taken their babies and sacrificed them in front of the Asherah, in front of that carved tree, because they've oppressed the poor, because they've oppressed the women, because they have oppressed my people, and they won't turn, so I'm going to send the Assyrians, who are stronger and crazier and more violent than you can imagine, and they're going to destroy them. And if they would just turn. And so you're like, oh my gosh. And then Isaiah's like, okay, how long should I say that for? How long should I say that to them for? And the Lord says to them, until the cities lie in ruins. You're going to say it, and you're going to say it, and you're going to say it, but because they don't want to hear it, they're going to reject you. And because they reject you, I'm going to use you, Isaiah, to harden their hearts. And the reason he uses Isaiah to harden their hearts is not because he's sending Isaiah, and he's saying, I'm going to harden their hearts so they won't listen to you. He's saying, I'm sending you, Isaiah, to tell them truth and to reveal to them where this is going. And they don't want to hear it, so they're going to become hardened to you and to me and to what I'm saying. And they're going to become hardened so long that I'm going to send the Assyrians and they will destroy my people. But I will rebuild my people and I will bring the Messiah to fix all of this. So he's saying, in, I don't know how he does it, but he says it by quoting this little, little piece of scripture from Isaiah. John is saying that exact thing. That exact thing. Jesus came saying things that sounded great on one end, but on the other end, they didn't want to hear him. Follow me. Follow me, but you got to give everything up. Follow me, but you got to trust me that we're going to go where I'm going to go, and you don't get to decide anymore. See, it's easier for the Israelites to stay in the dark, to carve a God who they can control instead of submit to a God that they can't comprehend. It's easier to continue to take advantage of the poor people than it is to submit to the Lord and intentionally care for the poor people. And it's easier to crucify Jesus than it is to submit to him and lose political and social power. It's easier to stay in the dark because revelation is going to cost 
It's going to cost them something. And they see it, and they're not ready to pay the cost. And the Jews do that because the Jews are humans just like us. We do the exact, exact, exact same thing. Exactly the same thing. You feel that. You can feel. If you just read through the New Testament, you can feel it. There's going to be some things you like and some things you grab onto, and there's going to be these other things that you're like, oh, I wish he wouldn't have said that. Because revelation costs something. It's easier to keep the friends that you have, even though you know those friends are leading you down a path that's not good for you. It's easier to come to church, play cool, and still sleep with your boyfriend or your girlfriend than it is to submit to the way that the Lord wants to take your life and your relationship. That's easier. It's easier to clam up when you get in front of people and put on a smile and put on a face than it is to lay all of the crap inside on the table and say, I need help, and I want healing, and I want something different. It's easier. Even though you know the light sounds good, even though you know the light is going to be more beautiful, even though you know the way that God has instituted things is probably best, probably best, there's that something in you that seeks for the comfort and the ease of the moment as opposed to laying it out and finding healing. So that's what he says, right? He blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. He blinded their eyes and hardened their heart by speaking truth. He blinded their eyes and hardened their heart by speaking the truth to them. And he says, I just want you to see and understand with your heart and turn, and there would be healing. my guess is many of you have felt that specific thing, not in the past, but recently. My guess is that there's a lot of you that have been feeling the Lord leading and pulling and tugging on you, but it's easier to stay. It's easier to clam up. It's easier not to lay it on the table and find healing. It's easier not to because you're left with a choice when you feel the Spirit do something like that or when you read what the Spirit's wrote and, and, and it and it grinds on you. You're left with a choice. Either you harden your heart up to it, and you tell yourself justifications, and you tell yourself lies, and you tell yourself things that will make it easier to not do what you know the Lord is leading you to do. It's easier to harden up than to say, I don't know where this goes, but I'm going to follow. And he's saying, unless they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And then he says there in those next couple verses, he says something really interesting. He said some of the authorities believed him. It said some people did believe him. Some people agreed with what he was saying. Some people were down to follow. But because of their fear of the Pharisees and their fear of getting kicked out of the synagogue, they didn't say anything. Because of fear of what other people would think or what might happen. They rejected Jesus. Uh, so 
I, I don't say that to say like, oh my gosh, you're all a bunch of terrible sinners. I say that to say that this is the way that we all are. Like I remember a, a thousand occasions, but a couple of them in particular, like when I was in youth group, I had already started smoking weed, I would already started drinking with my friends, I would already started partying, but I would still go to student life camp with youth group in the summers. And I remember one time, um, we're worshiping, it's the last night, you know, and, and it's fun, I had a good time with everybody, you know, but then we get there and for some reason, I don't know who spoke or what they spoke on, I don't remember, but I just remember being on my knees in this stadium and being like, I don't like where I'm at anymore. I don't like where I'm at anymore. Lord, I do want to follow you. And at that same moment, it was like, you know what this means then? You don't get to smoke weed anymore. You know what this means then? You're going to have to put up some walls between you and your friends because they're going somewhere that I don't want you to go. And in that moment, it was just like, uh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that because the notoriety, if you will, of being the guy in, at school that they could get all the that people could get weed or pills from. I didn't want to give that up because I was known as something and I didn't want to be known as the little Christian boy. I would rather be known as hey, is that crazy guy who's fun and we can buy weed from him on the weekends if we want to. That that was. That was better for me. And even though I didn't, I didn't like where I was at, and I knew the Lord was real, and I knew that he existed, and I knew that he wanted the best for me, I couldn't let go of what was in front of me, and what was in front of me was of no value. That happened on like four or five or a hundred occasions. And every time, my heart hardened up, and I would throw all of these questions in the air. So instead of saying, yes, Lord, I'll follow, it's like, Okay, what about the dinosaurs, huh? What's going on with the crazy stuff in the Bible, God? How about you answer all those questions? And so, in light of what he was calling me to do, and me feeling and driving that direction, my heart hardened up, and my heart hardened up, and it looked like questions. Questions that I knew couldn't be answered. Questions that would keep me from having to deal with a real issue of me giving up control to the Lord. Over and over and over that happened. Until finally he broke me. Like, and that's what he had to do. I got to read the New Testament in Harris County Jail on felony charges for running from the cops. I got to spend a little more time in there. And he slowed me down and I read the New Testament. But he, he did it because he loved me. He did it because he was chasing me. He did it because he was pursuing me. And I wasn't willing to give up all these little menial things. And because the Lord loves, he just kept on after me. So, again, that raises another question. What's God's response to people, to creation, to beings who are that way? To beings that when you try to get on their level and tell them the truth, and like show them that you love them and give and provide, what's his response when those beings harden up and go the exact opposite direction where they sort of give him the bird and they're like, no, nah, we're going to go do something different. Thanks, though. What's his response? 
What's his response? And it's, it, it's this. I'm going to finish this text. Uh, it, it's John 12, 44. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So this is God's response. So after the Israelites for 2,000 years continually reject him, he's like, you know what I could do? How about I take on flesh and I let them hammer me to a piece of wood, stab me in the side. How about that? And I'm like, God, what are you, that's a terrible idea. But what does he do to those whose hearts become hardened by truth? Well, he woos them with love, with love, with love. He's like, no, no, I love you this much. I will chase you this much. And so while truth can harden the heart, he does these things that just show he's this most loving, beautiful being that can be trusted at every single step of the way. His response to rebellion is to give his life for it. That makes no sense. That's ridiculous. If any of you had a friend or a kid who was like the Israelites or like you, you probably would secretly murder that person. But God doesn't do it that way. He allows himself to be murdered. And not just killed, but killed so that all of their sins can be placed on him. That all of the wrath that was owed them gets swallowed up in Jesus. So the response of God towards rebellion and rejection is just the giving of the life of his son. It is the giving of the life of his son. And so what's sort of, I guess, troubling about this text to me, um, what's troubling about this text to me is, is what follows. Listen. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Look, I, I, uh, I'm going to say this wrong. I was raised in a Baptist church, so I heard a lot of aggressive sermons about how you should give your life to the Lord, and if you don't, he's going to kill you, and then you'll go to hell. Uh, and so I grew sort of like, oh, those are weird sermons. Um, that's part of the reason I started getting high, uh, just a small part of the reason. So there was this thing in me, so I, like, I say all that to say when I read something like this, the first thing in me is not like, hey, let's just throw hell at everybody and see how they respond to that. That's not, that's not the point. The point of this text and where the story is going is this is the last time that Jesus is going to publicly make any sort of statements. 
This is the last time that Jesus is going to get up in front of everybody and say, follow me, believe in me. I want to give you life. I want to give you eternal life. I want to bring you to a different place. I want to go somewhere different. I don't want you stuck here. I want to go somewhere else. Like, this is the last time he's going to get up and say that. Because what happens after that is he gets to hang out with disciples for like five days. And then the next time he gets up in public, all of those people that he's dying for and all those people that he wants to see healed are going to be yelling, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas, give us the thief, and crucify Jesus. Crucify Jesus. That's what happens the next time he gets up. And so what he's saying here is the word, he came to save the world, but there will be a judge. And there will be something that happens on the last day. There will be a time when the Lord returns to deal with all of the evil that we men have been dealing in. There is a time when that happens. And he, and he uses statements like this all the time. Like to the Pharisees, he's like, I'm not going to be your judge. Moses is going to be your judge. Because Moses spoke of me. And if you think Moses is this awesome guy, then you should believe what he said about me. And he said, the prophets are going to judge you. My words are going to judge you. But he's saying there's judgment. And that's heavy and that's hard. And I don't like throwing that around because I've seen the way that the church has historically thrown around the idea of judgment. And frankly, I think it's inconsistent and irresponsible. But it's also irresponsible if I just glaze over this. And I'm like, Jesus wants to save you. Let's skip the hard part. Because the truth of the matter is, is that there are some of you who are trusting in lies to bring you comfort when you hear things like this. You hear things like this and you're like, I just want to do what I want to do now. Just let me party right now. Let me do what I want to do with my girlfriend right now. And then I'll I'll do this other religious stuff when I get older. I'll do this other stuff when I get older. When I have kids, I'll settle down. And then God will just be cool with that. And it's the most asinine thing I've ever heard. Okay, right now you have dreams of the future. You have dreams of a house. You have dreams of a job. You have dreams of a spouse. You have dreams of the future. In the future, you're going to have those things. You're going to have a spouse. You're going to have a house, probably. You're going to have these things. It's much harder to let go of dreams than it is to actual possessions. It's much harder to lay on the life, lay everything on the line when you actually have a house. That's much more difficult. So don't act like, tomorrow is going to be easier than today. Don't act like tomorrow is going to be, oh yeah, I'll just settle down and I'll start following these religious rules. Okay, if that's what you think, you've missed the point entirely. You've missed the point entirely. This is not about religion. This is not about following some ridiculous set of rules. What this is about is the God of the universe wants to bring life to your existence. These are philosophical ontological claims about existence. These are not merely religious words. These are claims about the way that existence works. And if Jesus is right, then there is a judgment day. If Jesus is right, then the longer you pursue the path that you want to go, the harder it is to break off of it. The harder your heart becomes to it. The more devastating the disaster has to be before you return to him. So we can throw all these claims in the air. We can throw all of our questions in the air. And we can throw all of our doubts in the air. But in the end, there's only one question 
Was Jesus lying? Or was he crazy? Or was he right? Because the text honestly isn't going to allow me to be this aggressive anymore. Maybe it will. We'll see. But this is where it is now. And this is all you have is now. You've got no promises for tomorrow. Our life is a vapor. And it's irresponsible of me to let you just continue to think that you're invincible and that nothing's going to happen and that you're going to be fine, that all your wildest dreams are going to come true and that you're going to graduate from here, find a perfect man, find a perfect woman, get all this money, have a couple dogs and a couple kids, retire and then go to Italy uh, every other year. That probably won't happen. You may get some of that, you may not get all of it. But for some of you, you won't get any of it. And that's just the reality of it. And as it said, reality is just, it, reality sucks to hear sometimes. But the beautiful thing about it is that Jesus is saying, I'm trying to give you life. I'm trying to go somewhere with you. I want to give you something different. I want to bring about something different. And he is completely capable of it. Absolutely willing and desiring to do that in your life. To bring freedom, to bring healing, to heal insecurities, to heal all of the issues, to forgive the past, to have a different future, to have a different way, and I don't know where it's going to go, and you won't either, but you will be able to say, I trust a God who gave his life for me. That's enough for me. I'll follow that. I'll give the rest of this crap up, and we can go. Like, that's what he's, he's putting that out. Um, just something to close on. Not that humans are free in any ultimate sense. They are dependent creatures. And their choices are within parameters set by God. Nevertheless, the choices that they are called to make are real, and they will be held responsible for their decision of whether to accept Jesus' claims regarding himself and his relation to God. There's only one question. Was Jesus right? Or was Jesus wrong? And that's the only one that's got to be answered. That's the only one that matters. And I'm not just saying about salvation and all that. If Jesus was right, and even though you believe in him and all these things, I'm not just saying about salvation. I'm saying about the things that you hold on to in your life. I'm talking about the way that you are with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. I'm talking about the way you handle alcohol. I'm talking about the way that you handle your sexuality. I'm talking about the way that you handle these little things that you say everything else is on the table, but I'm holding on to this. I'm holding on to my future. I'm holding on to my possessions. I'm holding whatever it is. Because if Jesus is the Messiah of Israel, he is Lord of the world, and he loves you so freaking desperately, that he's going to pry your hands loose. If you're one of his children, he's going to pry your hands loose of it. And that hurts a bit. I felt that. It hurts a bit. So, um, I, I don't love going into that stuff. I don't love it. Joe loves it. I don't love it. But, but honestly, and from a very real place, I love you guys. I really do. 
I met the Lord when I was your age. I've seen him change my future. I've seen him change my life. I've seen him heal wounds, some wounds I didn't even know I had. I've seen him just do beautiful things over and over and over again. And I remember what it was like sitting right here and holding on to meaningless things for no reason. For no reason. And so I only, I only bring this up because it's so desperately important. It really is. 